This podcast is for educational purposes only and provides general home lending information. For specific home lending advice about your circumstances, contact a Chase Home Lending Advisor for more information. For more information on the various home buying resources mentioned in this podcast, please visit chase.com forward slash affordable. Hi, I'm Nadeska, and you're checking out season two of Beginner to Buyer. Beginner to Buyer is powered by Chase Home Lending, and you can get helpful tools and resources to buy your first home by visiting beginnertobuyer.com. It was a lot of fun hearing from the Scott brothers on our last episode, because as usual, they shared some great advice for tackling home renovation projects. Now, maybe you're ready to take on the challenge of a big renovation, and especially one that could potentially generate some extra income for you. So this time we're gonna learn what an ADU is, and how to make your homework for you. Keelan Sears and his partner Amy are working on building out an income generating ADU at their home in Denver, Colorado. But before we get to that, let's listen to their unique strategy for buying their first home. Yeah, so before we bought this house, we were actually living in an RV. Um, and before that, we were living in an apartment. And um, at a certain point, and I think everybody has this experience, but when you're living in an apartment, you you realize that your money is going nowhere. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, you kind of have this this moment where you're just like, wow, I, I this is just vanishing into thin air. And we're really frustrated with that. So we didn't have enough money at that time for a house. And so we were trying to think of like any way that we could basically like have a living situation where we're putting money away. And um, this was kind of the height of, the van life craze. Um, and so we decided to buy an RV. We bought like a, an Airstream, a 28 foot Airstream that's from like 2010. So it wasn't insanely expensive. Um, and we started retrofitting it with um, solar panels, um, a mobile Wi-Fi router and um, modem so that basically if we were to sell it, somebody would be able to use this to work from the road, um, which at the time, was kind of the thing. Um, so our whole plan was to live in that for as basically as the life of the loan, pay off the RV, and then use that as a down payment for a house. Um, it turned out that within a year, we had put enough money into our loan and made enough on basically the modifications that we made to the RV that we had enough for a down payment within a year. Um, so our plan to buy a home actually just became Came, came a lot sooner. Wow, in a year. That is really, really impressive. And what was it like actually living in the RV for that year? I'm sure you were able to, you know, lower some of your costs. Uh, did you actually enjoy it, though? Oh, we loved it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. It, I think we were surprised by how expensive it was just with things breaking on the road. That's, uh, you know, it, you're definitely saving money by paying off a, a much smaller loan uh, month to month, but there's definitely a lot of stuff that breaks on the road, but that kind of all just added to the adventure. And I think the whole experience of living small was really special and it, it makes you a lot more conscious about like your, your impact on the earth and your consumption of resources. When it came now to selling the RV and starting to look for your home, was that sort of seamless? Did you already have a home like an offer accepted and you were able to move right in or was there an interim period? Uh, there was an interim period period and um, got to thank uh, our, both of our moms, both Amy's mom and dad and my mom and dad for housing us during the interim. Um, 
we're very fortunate to have parents that had an extra room that we could use. Um, and so we basically stayed with them, um, sold the RV, immediately started the house hunt. Um, so it was, it was relatively seamless, but I think there was, there was some overlap that we couldn't avoid. Um, and we were just fortunate enough to be able to utilize our parents there. You know, it's it's good to hear about the overlap. I think it, it's good for people who are in situations where they feel like it should be a super seamless transition and it doesn't work out like that. I definitely slept on my mom's couch uh, for three months when I was trying to close on yeah. my first apartment because there were issues. But as long as it worked out. So now tell me a little bit about the process of actually searching for your your, your home. Um, did you feel at that point financially really confident going in? And what was your list of must haves and things that you were able to? willing to compromise on both for you and for Amy? Mm -hmm. I don't think we were super financially confident going in. Um, I think at that point we were like, we were aware that there were first time homeowner programs um, available and, you know, there are certain um, stipulations that allowed you to put less money down upfront if you were a first time homeowner. Um, but outside of that, it was still kind of a big jump. And, uh, you know, not much of a contingency plan other than like, let's get this house, make sure that there's some way we can, you know, capitalize on it in the future. So did you have a pretty realistic list then of, you know, what you would be able to afford then? Were you able to maybe talk to a home lending advisor who helped you figure out what made sense for you? Yeah, we used our our real estate agent, Jason, and um, he was super helpful here. Jason's just a super nice guy. And um, he was really helpful through the whole process. Um, our, like our criteria going in was like, okay, let's get a place that we could rent a bedroom, at least one bedroom on Airbnb. So in an emergency situation, if like, it turns out we can't cover the mortgage or there's, I don't know, a surprise expense with the roof or something like that, we can basically like, um, make some extra income. And I think that that was at the time our only priority. And I think that naturally turned into, okay, location is everything if you want to rent something. So let's focus on location. So you and, and, and your partner were specifically looking for a house also that zone to have that accessory dwelling unit where you could rent out, like you mentioned, for some extra income. So then you got lucky and really found a property that fit the bill then. Yeah, that was kind of like the middle of the the housing search is where Jason was like, hey, you know, a lot of these places are zoned for ADUs. And it kind of like this light bulb went off and we're like, OK, let's look for houses that are zoned for ADUs. Um, and that was when probably a few houses after we found this one and we go, OK, yeah, this is zoned for an ADU. It's got a garage built. It looks like somebody already started the process of building an ADU. Um, and they were just panic selling it. And so it was, kind of, it was a little hard to tell like why they were selling it and why they accepted the first offer on the house. And, you know, still some debate there about what, what that impetus was, but, um, yeah, this one was already zoned for an ADU. Okay. So tell me now what happened after you guys purchased the property. So I'm assuming with, with zoning, that means there's uh, a permits required, right? Like the city needs to, to weigh in. So once you moved in, were there any surprises or were you then just able to maybe continue working mm -hmm. on that uh, ADU? Yeah. So there were, the permitting history was really confusing on this house. It was clear that there were multiple permits open for different things. Um, but none of them were closed out and we just didn't know why. Um, so there's definitely some risk that we were taking on by buying this house um, for sure. And our real estate agent was pretty upfront about that. 
Um, we bought it anyways. And once we started looking into it, it turned out that, um, you know, because none of these permits had been closed out, um, it wasn't even a legal garage <laughs> at that point. Oh. Um, and you know, we didn't, we didn't actually start the process until like a year later of looking into building an ADU or finishing this ADU. Um, that's when we, we realized that it's not even a legal garage. So then started conversations with the city, um, basically saying, how do we do this legally? And, um, going through that process with them, which has been a bit of a headache. Is it sort of a, a learn as you go situation or have you still been able to work with that realtor? Do you have any support here? After we decided we wanted to do the ADU, we started looking for, um, a design agency that like specifically did ADUs. Um, and so we found a firm here in Denver, um, a design firm and basically pitched to them and they said, yeah, we can definitely make this work. There's a few hoops we're going to have to jump here, but, um, uh, it's definitely doable. Okay. And how has that, um, financially then, how has that been, been working out? Have you had to pay for more permits? Um, you know, in terms of actually constructing that, that ADU, mm -hmm. what is that costing you? Yeah. So definitely, um, a bit of money up front. I'd say we're probably like $12,000, um, in the hole as far as like architect costs. Um, I think it's been worth it just in terms of them handling all the communications with the city and really piloting the permitting process. And um, I think that they did such a great job on our permits that that was really um, something that helped the city um, see kind of like the potential of our ADU. It's great that you got help. I think dealing with codes and permits and those kinds of things can really make your head spin if you're you're not experienced. So it's nice that you got professional help. And were you uh, did you and your partner decide to take out any loans to help you cover some of this or are you just dipping in, you know, your savings to do this? No. And I'm not sure whether or not that was a mistake. Um, we've talked about this, like whether should we have taken out a loan to cover the architect costs? Um, and we did, you know, we took out you know, a significant amount of our savings. So a little bit undecided as to what our strategy should have been there. Um, to a degree, I think it would have been helpful taking out a loan to cover those costs so that we had the free cash on hand um, just for, you know, emergency funds and stuff like that. But then on the other hand, now we're not paying any interest on outstanding loans. So do you feel pressure to stick to a certain uh timeline necessarily I, I mean obviously like the the thought there was really to have this as a rental unit right i'm assuming to help you offset your current mortgage well that's yeah so part of the problem here is once you open permits with the city you have to start work within one year and luckily it's been taking an, a crazy amount of time to get these permits i think we're we're over a year in uh, after trying to get these permits and we still don't have them yet. But once you get awarded the permit, you have a year to start work. Um, so we are kind of constrained by time. Um, and we were really hoping that we'd be able to use equity in our current home because of the current housing market, uh, to pay for the project. But I don't think that we're going to be able to cover it just with uh, a home equity loan. Okay, so you're still looking for, I guess if you had to say, you know, your your concerns at the moment, it's still figuring out the best way to to finance the, the ADU development? 
Yeah. Yep. I think that's kind of our, our, our current dilemma. Before deciding to buy a, a property um, where you can have an ADU, you and Amy sat down and maybe at least give yourselves like a rough idea of what that return on investment might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was um, that was something that we were thinking about as soon as we bought the house was kind of looking at, you know, a studio apartment in Denver and just averaging it around our area within like two or three miles and figuring out what that rent was and then um, looking online at basically mortgage calculators and looking at payments and best and worst case scenarios. So at their worst advertised um, interest rate, what would our payment be? And at like the best case, and we kind of figured, hey, at the worst case scenario, if we're at least covering the mortgage uh, or second mortgage or loan payment on the ADU, then that makes sense because then we essentially just have somebody paying the loan on this appreciating asset. Um, so that was kind of like our thought process going in um, as far as covering finances. And it's a good thought process. Although you're in a difficult stage right now, I think, you know, an undertaking like this usually ends up being challenging, but I'm sure even by your calculations, it still seems like it's absolutely going to be worth it at, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, right? You're just looking for a little bit of guidance. Yep, exactly. Okay. Well, Keelan, I think it's really um, just like amazing how you and your partner have approached this situation. You know, I, I think especially in such a tough market, a lot of people just look out there and say, well, sorry, I don't have the budget for this. I just can't do it. I love that you guys took the approach of, you know, living in an RV and selling that and, and slowly upgrading. It seems like you're really on the right path. So with all of the things that you've been through to get to this point, what would you say that homeownership really means to you and to Amy? I think home ownership means to me and Amy um, financial independence uh, in a, <laughs> a current climate where that's really hard to attain. Um, and I think this has been um, our most creative endeavor. And I would say to other people out there as well, be aggressive because we live in a world that is maybe not catered to those of us that are not making a lot of money. So get creative be financially aggressive while you're young and while you can do it. Um, and I think Amy would support me there. Amy, I love you. You were totally right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Keelan, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. And, you know, I'm going to check in with our experts and be back with some answers for you and Amy. For sure. Yeah, thank you. There are so many things to consider before taking on a project like an ADU. It's important to understand the local planning and building requirements, the potential return on investment, and even what it takes to be a landlord. Lots of fun stuff. So we brought in an expert to help us sort through all of that information. Call Peterson works with ADU specialists, an organization that offers training to industry professionals. So a lot of first time home buyers are learning a lot of new terms along the way. And one of the terms that they may be hearing pretty often and for the first time is an accessory dwelling unit. Can you tell us what that means? Sure. An accessory dwelling unit um, has many synonyms. There's probably 60 or more synonyms in the U.S. Uh, granny flat, in-law suite, mother-in-law unit, backyard cottage. All of them kind of imply the same thing, but they're secondary housing units on traditionally single family home lots. And so they can come in a variety of different structural forms, but it's a standalone free, you know, uh, unit um, on a primary with along with a primary residence. Uh, so as you just outlined something I didn't really think about, there are a lot of synonyms for it. So that means there are then multiple 
benefits to having an ADU on your property? Or, I mean, there's a lot of different motivations of uh, why people might want to build an ADU, but conventionally, like, there's two dominant motivations. One is for uh, extended living space for multi-generational households, and the second is um, additional rental income. And so it's usually those two motivations that comprise the variety of reasons why people are interested in building ADUs. And it's oftentimes one, it's oftentimes both of those reasons over a period of time. So like, so somebody might want a extended space for their mom to come live with them while they're raising a child, but then ultimately their mom doesn't want to live in their, you know, on their property or something like that. And so they plan to eventually rent it out until their kid gets older, at which point maybe the teenage child would uh, merit having an additional space on the property so that the mom can telework. And then eventually the parents don't want to be in their city full time. So they begin to rent out the primary house and move into the ADU so they can snowbird in, you know, Arizona or whatever. A lot of flexibility indeed. And you mentioned the word freestanding before. So is an ADU always built separately from the main home? No, not always. Like, in fact, you know, in large parts of the East Coast, in Massachusetts, for example, you cannot build a detached freestanding ADU for the most part. Now, that is not a good idea from a municipal like code perspective to require that the ADU be attached or to the primary house. But um, no, you can definitely have different structural forms of ADUs, uh, like in Portland or, you know, pretty much the whole West Coast, you can have any form of a ADU, whether it's a detached freestanding ADU, an ADU above a garage, an ADU above a workshop, a garage conversion ADU, uh, an internal ADU, like a basement conversion ADU, or an attic conversion ADU. Um, but uh, that, that sometimes will vary depending on the jurisdiction's codes. What if someone already owns a home um, and wants to build an ADU or convert a space into an ADU? What kind of things should you consider in that situation? There's a lot of considerations. So number one, does your jurisdiction allow accessory dwelling units? Number two, what are the codes? And oftentimes, unfortunately, most of the country, the entire East Coast, I would say, for the most part, has pretty poor ADU codes. So I do a lot of education advocacy for jurisdictions, legislatures that are interested in adopting better codes because so much of the country has such bad codes for ADUs. But in any case, you know, the truth is, like, even if ADU codes are bad, people are building ADUs anyway. For example, in New York City, Washington, D.C., Boston, people are building tens of thousands of these things, but they're just not legal. They're building them, they're doing basement conversions, and there's that tens of thousands of these things in every major city in the country, but they're not legally permitted as ADUs. So in any case, that not not to distract from your question, but that's just the reality. So on the West Coast, where you can where you can build ADUs, you know, say the regulations are good, then the next question becomes, can you afford to build this thing? Maybe you can afford to build an internal conversion ADU because you have a garage, so you you can convert that structure, and that's going to cost like one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. But you cannot afford to build a detached freestanding ADU, which will cost like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So depending on the cost, like what kind of access to capital that you have, that would that would kind of perhaps influence what type of accessory dwelling unit you'd be able to build. And then from that point, then you start to get into, you know, what is the pro the sequence of steps that you need to take in order to actually achieve building this ADU. If you're going to do an internal conversion, you might go right to a builder. If you're going to do a detached construction ADU, you might find a design build 
company or a builder who can give you an estimate of what it might cost. And that would hone in the scope of whether you're going to do a 400 square foot thing or an 800 square foot thing. And then you go to an architect and then you go to the city and kind of inquire about whether the proposed idea is going to work within the codes. And then you can start with the design process and then you get through three months of design, three months of permitting, six months of construction. So it's, it's a big, it's, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is a very major, major project, the most major project of people's lives other than having a child probably. Wow. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, what is the average cost of building an ADU? But as you outlined, there's so many different versions of it. It's hard to pick a cost. So let's talk a little bit about the timeline. If you're someone who's considering this, um, in order to make additional income, how much time should you be roughly factoring in to make this happen? Well, let's go back to the cost for one second. So if we're talking about like an apples to apples, freestanding detached new construction in the in the West Coast market in Portland, a new construction ADU might cost $225,000. Whereas in San Francisco, a new construction detached ADU might cost a starting point of like $300,000. In the Midwest, it might cost a starting point of like $160,000. So it all depends on where you are and depend which you know, influences the billable, like how much per hour you're paying for contractors. Um, so, so the cost, there is a way to reconcile, like understand what the cost might be for a detached new construction ADU. When you're talking about a conversion ADU, then there's a lot of variables. It could be $5,000 if it's a really simple finished space uh, that you're converting to an ADU, or it could be, you know, maybe like $125,000. So there is a way to wrap your head around cost, but it takes some education about what form of ADU you're going to build and what you're starting off with. That makes sense. And then the timeline varies depending on sort of your city and permit rules, et cetera. Well, the timeline is like cost does vary depending on what type of ADU you're building. So if you're doing a conversion of an existing like habitable space, like a basement that already has everything that you need, maybe it's only going to be a couple months to do the construction. If it's a new construction ADU, six months to nine months of construction time, but the permitting time is going to probably be roughly three months, you know, on average across the country. And then the design time might be about three months. So we're talking about like a year to a year and a half for uh, a homeowner to execute the plan of building an ADU if they're going at full speed. That is to say, if they're not dilly-dallying at all, it could take certainly take three years if people are taking their time, which a lot of people do because it's not a a small endeavor and people need to somehow like some imagine this you come to me and you say yeah, i want to build an ADU in my backyard and i say nadeska do you have enough capital to do this do you have three hundred thousand dollars and you're like no and i say okay well you're going to need to get a construction loan in order to get a construction loan you need to prove that you have more income which means that you have to change the way you're doing your bookkeeping and accounting for period of two tax years so that you can show enough reportable income to generate enough uh, income to show that your debt to income ratio will be adequate for a bank to give you a construction loan. Um, and then at that point, then you can consider starting the process of doing it. So that could take easily two years just to get the financing worked out such that you can begin the process. Cause you don't want to start this process unless you actually have the money to execute on it. Cause you know, as you can imagine, this is an expensive endeavor. You don't want to start down the road build a foundation, realize you don't have the capital to finish it out. Absolutely. So if you're looking at this as a source of additional income, um, you know, you have to factor in the money and the time it will take. And so you mentioned construction loans. Is that the only way that you can finance this type of renovation? Are there any housing grants available, for example? 
about housing grants available. In fact, construction loans only represent about two to five percent of how people are building ADUs. Most people are using a variety of different, um, like a mix, uh, what I call like a, there's a, there's like five different buckets of funding that people access. That is cash in one way or another, loans from family or friends, like personal loans. Uh, there's credit card debt, there's home equity lines of credit and cash at refinancing, which is a big bucket. That's where, you know, if you have accrued equity on the property on which you live, you can dip into that additional valuation, the increased valuation of your property and access that money in order to build the ADU. Then you can get non-secured lines of credit that is like personal loans from banks that are secured against your personal wealth, so to speak, um, if you have stocks that you can lend against. And then there's also construction loans, which are more difficult. And those are typically local banks and credit unions that do that work. But that's that's kind of the least popular approach because there is some red tape and, and you know difficulty in administratively getting those types of loans. Okay. So anywhere you look at it, you're gonna need a pretty sizable investment up front. So if you are looking at this, you know, for income, do you have any advice on determining whether it's worth it or what the income potential could actually be on the ADU after you invest all of that money? Yeah, there's there's definitely some ways to think about it. So um the, the best return on investment is going to be for the least expensive ADU you build, obviously, because you know you can generate more rental or you can generate the same amount of rental income roughly for a less expensive project. So therefore the timeline would be less. So if you did a conversion of an existing structure, like a basement or a garage that was viable, that is to say it was structurally viable, it didn't have leaks, mildew, mold, rot, mill, you know, it could be legally converted from a zoning perspective, then you can get a pretty good return on investment, maybe two to five years, depending on how you um, look at the increased, like if you're looking at the increased property, uh, value as a result of ADU, then the timeline becomes less. And in terms of like how much time it takes to pay for it, if you're not including the increased valuation of the property, then the timeline is going to be longer. And then for a detached new construction ADU, it, you know, it's eight to 12 years if you're not including, not including the increased valuation of the, of the improvement. If you're including that increased valuation, then it's going to be like four to six years for it to pay for itself. Okay. And so if you've made all of these calculations and still decided that it makes sense for you to move forward, what are some of the things that you might want to consider um, when deciding to use an ADU for additional income? Like once it's fully set up and you are a landlord, for example, it's your first time being a landlord, there are things that you want to keep front of mind. If you're doing this and you're doing it for rental income, then you're going to be a landlord. And so you should be, you know, become familiar with what is involved with that. Um, they, they call it passive income, and that's for a reason, because it's not that hard to be a landlord, to be honest. Um, you just have to kind of know what the you know legal parameters of being a landlord are. Um, and of course, you're going to have to do maintenance on not one dwelling, but two dwellings. And you're going to be potentially sharing a property with another household. So you have to be mindful of, you know, who's going to park where if you, you know, if you only have limited amounts of parking or who's going to store their bikes and lawnmowers where on the property, if you've converted your garage, where are you going to store your bikes, your canoes, your garbage cans, your suitcases? Um, so you might want to build an, you know, another shed in which to house these like long-term storage needs on a property. So there's definitely some considerations um, that, you know, should be, thought of um but you know for the most part if you are able to get through the process of building an adu which is not a small endeavor you're you know the the actual ownership landlording part of it is is 
pretty easy, um, all things considered. Figuring out where to store the canoe, you're saying, is not the most stressful part of having an ADU. Okay. <laughs> Definitely most stressful, <laughs> stressful part is bleeding $10,000 a day for various improvements that you need to make when you have to buy a whole set of new appliances and you're like, oh my God, I didn't realize appliances yeah. cost $10,000. I didn't realize counters cost $5,000. I didn't realize the sink faucet is going to cost $700. You're doing this day after day after day after day after day and you're like, I've never spent this much money in my life. That is the stressful part of building an ADU. Absolutely. I mean, and once you've made it through all of that and tax season rolls around, what does that mean for that additional income you've earned with your ADU? So taxes, you know, there's a good side and bad side. So when, you, when you're spending all this money, um, let's say you build a $200,000 structure on your property, you can, if you're going to use that for rental income, you can actually depreciate the value of that improvement. So $200,000 written off over 27 and a half years on a depreciation schedule means you can knock off, you know, $6,000 a month off or $6,000 a year off of your rental income. So that's the um, positive side. Um, the negative side is that your property taxes will go up when you build an ADU um, in that uh, you've increased the value of your property in the eyes of the assessor and therefore your taxes will go up accordingly. So there's, you know, a pro and a con to it, but all that is offset by the fact that you're getting, you know, if you're renting it out, you're making quite a bit of money off of this unit. So it's difficult, again, just like costs to speculate what the, you know, rental income potential of an ADU is, but in our market, in Portland, a garage conversion ADU would rent out for like $1,500 a month. An 800 square foot detached construction ADU would rent out for like $2,200 a month. That sounds like potatoes if you're in San Francisco. But of course, in San Francisco, <laughs> 400 square foot ADU would rent out for $2,300 a month. The 800 square foot ADU would rent out for at least 3000 So it all depends on your market um, and what you could get in that market. The best way to determine that is to look on you know, like Craigslist essentially and, and figure out what a one bedroom apartment in your area would go for. And that's roughly what an AD would generate in terms of rental income. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned Craigslist. So there's different ways obviously to go about renting out an ADU and you can also consider, you know, having a long-term tenant, like we mentioned, being an actual landlord, or you could do short-term rentals through Airbnb, for example. So how what advice would you give in terms of weighing those two things and how to approach each scenario? with the Airbnb one first, which is, you know, a little bit more complicated in that you have to start with what the city allows. And in our city, for example, in all of California, where ADUs are really popular, these, you know, the biggest markets for ADUs right now are on the West Coast. And that's because the regulations are really good on the West Coast because statewide legislation has required them to be really good. And in those two markets, or at least in California, you can't do short-term emergency. That is to say, you cannot do an Airbnb on your ADU. And so a lot of jurisdictions will say you can't do an Airbnb if you're going to do an ADU. And so therefore you can't do that, but you can do a long-term rental income. And, and the difference is long-term rental. And the difference between an Airbnb or short-term rental and a long-term rental is if you rent it out for 30 days or less, it's a short-term rental. If you rent it out for 30 days or more, it's a long-term rental. So a lot of people are predisposed to thinking about Airbnb, but you can't necessarily do it. Now, if you can do it, then the question becomes, are you willing to go through the um, lack of predictability that comes along with a short-term rental. Um, and so you can generate a lot of rental income from an, from an Airbnb, but you can also not make anything. If you, if, if you happen to suffer through a worldwide pandemic where nobody's allowed to travel, for example, all of a sudden you're not gonna be able to rent out your 
housing units to a short-term rental guest because there are no short-term rental guests. Or if your jurisdiction says you can't do short-term rental anymore, then all of a sudden you're um, stuck with the unit that you know you know isn't renting. However, if you um, are able to rent it out as a short-term rental and it is a good market and there is a lot of tourism and you know you're you know a good host and you get good ratings, then yeah, you can make pretty good money on Airbnb. And the benefit of an Airbnb uh, is that not only can you create pretty good rental income, but you can also um, use the structure as you wish when it's not being rented out on Airbnb. So people sometimes think about that option if, for example, they have a parent who helped funded the ADU so that they could um, have a place to live when they are visiting their child who has now grandchildren and they want to come in for two months a year and then 10 months a year they don't want to live there so that that's kind of a combination where it's like oh yeah let's just airbnb it when it's not being used by grandma okay great so cole you broke down a lot for us here it's so much great information so essentially an adu it can be a great source of additional income it can be great for the in-laws it gives you a lot of flexibility but it may not necessarily be for everyone. Um, timing, of course, is a big factor because as you mentioned, you have to put up a lot of money. So I guess generally, uh, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about this for the very, very first time? You know, what is the quickest way to just figure out if this might make sense for you or not? So um, I, I helped run an ADU specialist designation, which you can uh, Google aduspecialist.org. Um, and there's a list of uh, accredited uh, real estate professionals, designers, and builders, all of whom have been through uh, a class and take an exam that show that they know their stuff about ADUs. Um, so maybe reach out to a local uh, real estate professional in your area to determine whether uh, they can help you with, uh, you know, determining whether an ADU is potentially feasible uh, for you or not. And um, so there's my long-winded answer to your relatively simple question. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, thank you. As you pointed out, nothing here is really, really simple. So I appreciate you giving us so much great information to work with. Cole, thank you for your time. You're welcome. So on this episode, we learned that investing in an ADU is not so simple as our homeowner Keelan found out. But I hope that at this point, his biggest worry is where to store his canoe and that now his return on the investment for his ADU is starting to pay off. Maybe you're at the point in your homeownership journey where you have some financial flexibility to consider owning an investment property. So next time, I'm going to ask Alexis Hart McDowell about how to plan for that. Until then, you can learn more by visiting beginnertobuyer.com and consider revisiting the first season of the show as a review. Beginner to Buyer was created by Magnet Media and Chase Home Lending. Our executive producers are Ashley Bobo and Akash Vaswani. Our lead producer is Pamela Lawrence and our media editor is Matthew DiPietro. This podcast is for educational purposes only and provides general home lending information. It is not intended to provide legal, tax, or financial advice or to indicate the availability or suitability of any J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., product, or service. Chase is also not responsible for and does not provide or endorse third-party products, services, or other content discussed in this podcast. For specific home lending advice about your circumstances, contact a Chase Home Lending Advisor for more information. If you'd like to check out the Home Buyer Assistance Finder, Chase My Home, the DreamMaker Mortgage, and other home buying tools and resources mentioned in this podcast, make sure to visit chase.com forward slash affordable.